There were hundreds of political prisoners in Drabchi prison, most of them young monks. The Chinese called them the Dalai Lama's running dogs. This was meant to be a derogatory label, but we were all rather proud of this title because to us, the Dalai Lama still represented freedom. We were not deterred by the beatings and continued to organize protests in the prison. We told the younger prisoners that they mustn't let the guards see that they were frightened because fear was what gave the guards power and 30 years in prison had taught me that you should never beg for mercy because mercy was not what you'd get. Hello and welcome to the Church of Max and Anudge. This episode we sit down with a Tibetan monk. Paldin Jiatsu was imprisoned in China as a political prisoner after the Chinese had invaded Tibet. His story is one that many Tibetan monks faced in the 20th century. He tells of his enduring courage to stand up to his oppressor. Join us as we uncover a couple more secrets of life with a monk from the land of snows. This is Life Could Be a Dream. I want to begin by speaking of how the Chinese socially and physically dehumanized you with derogatory terms and beatings. This all just made you stronger mentally and made you want to fight more, and on top of that, you couldn't show fear. Sounds very tough, but it takes so much time and mental toughness to not give in to the constant beating. But was everyone so equally strong? You see, uh, some of them not so much. Uh, Many prisoners committed suicide. Some thought that they were cowards. Others that it was an act of courage. I dare not pass judgment. No one can understand the extreme despair that drives someone to take their own life. As a Buddhist monk, I was brought up to regard human life as the most precious thing in the world. And I found strength in the desire to show my tormentors that they had not beaten me, that I still had the courage to live. Wow, it sounds like you had to be sort of a different breed to be able to get through this. Although I was tough, I didn't let the beatings and harassment get to me much. We were made to attend weekly meetings at which we had to criticize ourselves and our friends. Like everyone else, I was subjected to the many criticisms, and I made many criticisms. I never got used to the pain that the denunciation of a friend could cause. But we had to learn to forget the endless false betrayals. The camaraderie among the prisoners was genuine and unmistakable. And we all tried to avoid making accusations that might lead to an increased sentence or execution. However, there were always a few prisoners ready to prove their loyalty to the party by the accusations, regardless of the consequences. So even though you had to maintain this sort of solitary lifestyle, you still managed to stay loyal to each other and look out for each other. Always making sure that no hardships were added that didn't need to be because you already had enough hardships from the... Chinese oppressors. But what about your connections to your friends and family outside of the prison? Honestly, Max, it was safer for everyone to forget their loved ones. We all learned to live as though we were orphans, with no parents or brothers or sisters, or even friends in the outside world. This was perhaps easier for me as a monk than it was for some other prisoners. I was used to being solitary. I had no strong ties, no memories of a wife or children tugging at my heart. Even still, sometimes, 
I think we Tibetans tend to avoid uncomfortable subjects in the hope that pain will vanish of its own accord. Even today, the memory of my aunt and my cousin Wang Mo brings tears to my eyes. Those were the happiest days of my life. See, I can't imagine I would have the mental strength to forget my family so easily. Well, I'm sure it wasn't very easy for you either. But I can see how it made, made it easier for you in that situation. And I know that you had escaped from prison and almost made it to the Bhutanese border before being captured. So fast forwarding to your return to the prison after escaping, how they got you back. You were interviewed and I know they asked you, why did you want to escape? I mean, I can form some sort of idea myself, but I'd like to hear the answer from you, too. Yes, uh, I had been waiting for this question ever since my arrest, and I knew that this was my chance to speak my mind. You know, I'd been waiting for this opportunity for, for over two years, Max. And so what I told Fang, my interrogator, that I told him it should be obvious why I wanted to escape. I explained how I had been beaten during the interrogations of 1960 how prisoners had starved to death, and how those of us who had survived lived only with the pain of hunger and the prospect of our own deaths. The Chinese officials listened to my story, and for an first hour or so they did not even interrupt me. But when I told them about the food shortages, Fang Yuan, my interrogator, then rose from his chair and said in a slow pedantic way of his that the shortage of the food was caused by the Soviets. Then he sat down, and I was allowed to continue. I told the officials of my disappointment when I was not released with the other prisoners in December 1962. I'm kind of starting to realize how difficult it must have been for, for many, including you, mentally. But all of your experiences made you tough as you are today, though. Not saying it was a good thing, but all these hardships sort of paid off. I feel that I should reword that, but you get the point. Mentally, being away from family and friends is one thing, but you went through solitary confinement too, right? How was that? Yes, the solitary confinement and also the physical confinement. It was a means of gaining control of our thoughts. Every meeting began with a lecture of, on the need for prisoners to reform their ideas and, and beliefs, and they told us that we had to learn to cherish the party in our hearts and minds, but the cuffs could not control the way I thought. My religious training brought me peace of mind. Physical restraints were only the outward sign of imprisonment. I still had the power to give my thoughts free reign. That's such a powerful message you convey. And although it takes much experience, learning to be, to learning to always be quote-unquote free is, I think is very important mentally. And I know I shouldn't really be talking because solitary confinement would have driven me insane personally, but it's just another example of how the harsh treatment taught you such valuable lessons. Yes, on that note, actually, um, no one, understandably, wanted to be reminded of the horrors they lived through, and uh, it was easier to accept the party's maxim, uh, the past is the past. The party wanted us to forget what it was like to starve. They wanted us to forget the taste of watery broth, the weight of leg irons, and the pain of beatings. These were things of the past, never to be repeated. Yeah, that's interesting. But even if you don't want to be reminded, it is always in the back of your mind, and it's, it made you the man who you are today. 
During your harsh conditions at the prison, I'm sure death was in the back of your mind too frequently. Yes, sir. Death was our constant companion. It was also the ultimate expression of the party's power. Prisoners confronted death in different ways. I remember in the autumn of 1971, people being summoned one by one into a small office. The door of the office was left wide open, and there was a large window through which you could observe everything that took place inside. An elderly monk went in ahead of me. No amount of beating or torture had been sufficient to make him submit and renounce his religious vows. But no one could have predicted the way he reacted to the announcement of his death sentence. He wailed for mercy. He prostrated himself before the Chinese officer as monks used to do before their teacher or a high lama. He wept uncontrollably. Soldiers rushed forward and dragged him to a table. They placed his fingerprint on a document and then like a sack he was tied up and thrown in the corner of the room. When another man found out that the party had decided to take away his right to live, the man said thank you. He sounded delighted. I was astonished, and so were the Chinese officers. But we were even more surprised by what he said next. He recited an old Tibetan proverb. It is good to have a long, happy life, but even better to have a short, unhappy one. This man was a layman, with no training in meditation and Buddhist philosophy. How could he have faced death with such courage, while a learned monk who had devoted his life to the contemplation of death and the belief that his physical being was nothing but an impermanent mass, became so distraught, pleading for mercy? I can't tell for sure, but I can say fairly sure that I would not react subtly to the announcement of my death. I'd probably go insane too, but it does seem that no matter how much time and training you have, the idea of death is it's different for everyone. Everyone sees it differently. But the Chinese seem to pay no mind to their prisoner's suffering. And what's worse, they force the truth out of everyone too. Yes, you're quite right. The Chinese did not believe that their work was done until the prisoner confessed. First, I was baffled by the authorities' insistence on obtaining confessions of guilt. Soon I realized that it was an important element of Communist Party policy. An admission of guilt was like saying, the party is right and I am wrong. It did not matter to the party whether the confession was genuine or not. All that mattered was that it proved to the party that one more enemy of the people had been eliminated. So in your case, what did your confession consist of? Or what did the Chinese really want to hear from you? All that the Chinese wanted was for me to implicate Girin Sen Tempa as a spy. But how could I do that? In Tibetan Buddhism, the bond between teacher and student is based on devotion and trust. I look to Gien as my mentor. How could I betray him and live with a clear conscience? And what if the Chinese had not sent Gien back to India at all? If the Chinese were keeping Gien prisoner somewhere, and I had denounced him as a spy, what then? I had nothing to confess, and no amount of beating could induce me to implicate Gien Rensen Tempa in these preposterous accusations. So the Chinese failed to get the truth out of you, which is yet another example of your resilience toward them. You really were loyal until the very end to the people that were close to you, like your mentor, which is very valuable morale to have. And your loyalty stemmed from the, from the Dalai Lama as far as I know. And I know you did get the chance to meet with him too. How was that? Oh, Max, I tell you, my meeting with the Dalai Lama lasted more than two hours. 
and I was able to tell him about the enduring faith we had in him. I was weeping when I left the room. That meeting had been my life's ambition. I made my way to the temple opposite the Dalai Lama's residence and offered a prayer that all should be released from suffering. I like how you prayed that all people should be released from suffering. I like to think that includes the Chinese as well. Speaking of the Chinese, when you escaped from India, you were given the opportunity to speak in front of the United Nations uh, in Geneva. Describe how that felt. Only when I finished did I look up and notice the Chinese delegation sitting in front of me, listening. They were listening. That gave me such a rousing sense of my freedom, and I wished all my fellow prisoners had been there to witness it. For we had all dreamed of being able to confront our tormentors face to face and have them listen to our testimony. I was the first Tibetan prisoner to have the opportunity to speak before the United Nations, and so I knew that I was not just speaking for myself, but for all Tibetans still in prison, and for all Tibetans who had ever been in prison. The delegates heard only my voice, but behind my voice lay the suffering of the thousands of prisoners who had not survived to bear witness as I have. And did you get a chance to respond from the Chinese? What was their response to the, or their reaction to your story? Oppressors will always deny that they are oppressors. All I can do is bear witness and set down what I saw and heard and what the strange journey of my life has been. Suffering is written now in the valleys and mountains of Tibet. Every village and monastery in the land of snows has its own stories of the cruelty inflicted on our people. And that suffering will go on until the day Tibet is free. Okay, Max, so first off the bat, this is probably, I think this is probably the, my favorite autobiography that we've read so far. Um, was that the same for you? I think I'd have to agree. Definitely the most entertaining, the most capturing yeah, thing I, I wasn't, we've read so far. Yeah, I wasn't bored. Like one, I, I, Every time I wanted to keep on reading or, or listening, in our case, to the book, I didn't want to stop, um, which I can't say the same for all the other autobiographies. No, definitely not. And the thing that makes this one kind of special is, um, you know, we read 1984 in class, and this autobiography feels like like a real-life version of 1984, which is, I thought it was actually kind of scary. This has actually happened in real life. Yeah, I mean, just so that our listeners know, I mean, they probably do, but 1984, it was like the government controlled the people, and it, like, controlled their minds, and all the people that were prisoners to the government were, like, suffering, and very similar to, to what... What was his name again? The monk. Um, Paul and Gyatso. Paul and is exactly what Paul and Gyatso described, just in a different setting in real life. Yeah. Yeah, like his interrogations, especially, were like almost like the things that we saw um, that Winston um, had to face in 1984. Yes. So it was, yes. it was, yeah, it, it was. It stuck. It was too similar, in my opinion, which is not good. Um, and and also what how um, Paul then described his time in prison. Um, it was so well, des- like des- he described it so well that it made me wince, you know, when he talked about um, like a Tanzing, which is when um, a prisoner would get beaten up by all the other prisoners and people would denounce them. Like the pain he felt when he thought his- he would never be able to use his hands again. Um, you know, I could feel his pain. Um, maybe not as, as um, wasn't as painful to me as it was to him, but it made me wince. I could, it, it, it um, it made me it made me realize that 
you know, what these prisoners are going through was not easy at all. No, I think that's why it was such a captivating book to read because he did do such a good describing all of these experiences that felt like we were there with him or at least we could I could really see him like suffering and all the people around him and I mean I don't know how the Chinese have like the guts to even do that I mean I don't know I feel like it takes someone it takes someone like him to go through all that suffering but I think to 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 force that suffering on so many people I think that also takes I don't know what kind of person you'd have to be. Yeah. Well, I feel like you might not have to be American as well. I feel like <laughs> um, like like our country um has done stuff maybe stuff comparable to this, you know, maybe like you know, we had Japanese internment camps. We basically wiped out I wouldn't say me and you Max. So we are pretty new to this country our families. Yes. But um this country has wiped out the uh, um, Native American population. It has, you know, African American civil rights woman. Um, but the thing about I think what makes America a little different from China is that, you know, it's one thing to be proud of your country. Like we can be proud to be American. Um, you know, and I guess if you're Chinese, you can be proud to be a Chinese. I don't know how you would be proud. Like I feel like you can be proud of your country, but you can also be ashamed of what your country has done. Um, so, like. In t- for example, like I might be proud to be an American, but I might be ashamed of um, the Japanese internment camps, right? For example, I think what makes America different than China is um, we're able to look back on our history and say, you know, that was a that was really bad. You know, we should have never should have never done that, and and that's how we become better. But in China, yeah. you don't get that opportunity. Like I know that like some of the history isn't even taught in China. That actually happened in China, and like the history is like it's like you know made up, and so people aren't given the facts. And then you know that whole sense of reform to move on to make better is not even there. So I think I think that's the biggest difference between America and China. I think you're bringing. I think it's very true what you say about in schools how we because we do learn about all the. Bad things that Americans have done in the past, like as you said, the Native Americans, the Japanese internment camps. I mean, we learn about those pretty thoroughly, and it's pretty—it's depressing to see that our country, America, has done that in the past. But I think it's good that we learn about it, and that's how we—we—that's how we cause reform. I mean, that's how we do better. How that's how we stop all of this bad stuff. But in China, if they don't teach that stuff, especially to the kids, they grow up thinking. Oh, China is such a great place. We've never done anything wrong. We just continue living, living like this,、yeah. and then no one ever does anything about it. Like even in Germany, like people are taught about like Hitler and the Nazis, and that's why that you don't see that coming up again. You know? Yeah. Because exactly. Yeah. So that's just important. But now, you know, going back to the the camps in general,、um, you know, Paulden talks about the suicide in in, in the suicide rates in those camps. And you know, I'm not surprised that many prisoners did commit suicide,、um, but I feel like, like I don't know, I wasn't surprised by that, and I don't think you were gonna be surprised by that either, right, Max? No, definitely not. Because in, in the 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 situation that Paul didn't describe is one that、um, you know it sounds better to just be dead, like, and even Paul didn't、um, when he was asked, like sometimes the prisoners would be like, well, Paul didn't, because he he was all about non-cooperation. 
never cooperated with the prisoners and never confessed because um, the prisoners would like take you in and then, I mean, not the prisoners, the guards would take the prisoners in and they would ask them, like, confess. And without even telling them why they were arrested, what, what they have done. And so the thing is that you just never confessed until, like, um, you've been told, like, why you're arrested. And so there was, like, Paladin, like, I'll shoot you or, like, I'll, I'll whip you. And Paladin's like, oh, you might as well just kill me, you know? And I said, I think that's, that's, I think that type of mindset was very common in the prison because, like, of course, dying would be, like, much easier than, than having to, like, survive in that camp. I agree with you, but I also think, I mean, obviously, I cannot, I can't, I think, I, no, I'd agree with you in the fact that I think many, it was very common that many of them had that mindset that it was better to, like, like the, um, the one man who, the, when the Chinese declared his death, when he said, it's better to live a short, unhappy life than a long, happy one. I think that was pretty common in the camps. But personally, I can't, I can't say the same. I mean, I know I can't, even if I was in that situation, I, I don't think I'd bring myself to, to commit suicide. I mean, it's something, yeah. I guess, a little selfish to say, but. No, I don't no, no. Know. I think, I think there's a difference between committing suicide and then, like, being happy that you're dead, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I guess committing so. suicide is, is as Paul then said, is of course we can't can't understand the extreme despair that would drive someone to go down that path, um, you know. But I think that I I think it, it's it's one thing to be like, you know, you're gonna someone telling you your sentence for death and being like, okay, you know, this is probably honestly it'll be better than staying in prison for the next thirty years of my life, or like I'm like I'm like hanging on to life by like one thread. Whereas, um, I'm just gonna, like, I've just, I've, this is too much, I'm gonna end it. I think those are two very different thoughts. Yeah. I mean, okay, apart from the, from the beatings and the harsh treatment that they received in the camp, I think what he talks about, that he had to sort of, like, forget or separate himself from the connections that he had with his family and friends outside of the camp, I think that would have been a massive... I think that would have been very difficult for me because I think not being sort of a part of life in general because I mean it's sort of like they were in their own sort of bubble in this camp in the in the prison because they were separated from what their family was doing and what their friends were doing outside of the camp. I think that would have caused much more despair for me than the beatings and everything that was going on in there because I think dealing with like physical beatings is one thing but I don't know. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think, I think you can, you can get used to. I think after a while, you might just get numb to the outside. And I, I know, like, and when like Paul then returned to his, his family, everything was so different. It's almost like I would have rather just hung on to the thoughts of like how everything used to be than trying to think about how it is now because it changed so much. But I, I think, um, you know, of course. Thinking about your family is hard, but mostly when a lot of people's wives started like remarrying and like denouncing their husbands so that you know they could save themselves. Um, I like imagine you know you're in prison and you come home and you realize that your wife is like marrying someone else, you know, and then everything that you everything you had before, um, you know, you were in prison is gone. So like you you start out with Tibet is like you know a beautiful country like kind of like Bhutan is today, you know, it's just revolves around you know the, the buddhist ways and um 
peaceful place, and then suddenly your country is invaded. And it's not that not just your country that's been invaded. Now it's like your livelihood, and now it's your your religion, and then on top of that, it's your family structure. So they've taken everything away from these prisoners. So it, it, you might be right. Like physical tormentation is is one thing. You can be beat and and even killed, but to come back to your home and realize that the Chinese have not just taken away your freedom, your religion, but just they've also taken away your family. That's true. Yeah, that is a very difficult thing. Fun fact: Bhutan. I watched some video sort of recently. Bhutan is actually. I know you can't really measure happiness, but they're ranked, I think, number one in, on the happiness scale, if you can call it that, in the world. So, yeah, I, think... I watched I watch one. I watched a video on Bhutan too recently. Um, yeah, they have gross domestic happiness. That's that's yeah, like their exactly. main thing. Yeah, that's exactly. pretty sick. And and, is... and to think about it, how, like, to, I I think Tibet's bigger than Bhutan, but they're so they're like they're so close to each other, and like, it's it's weird why it you can see. I feel like Bhutan maybe be like a representation of how Tibet could have been, you know, if it's still an independent country.、Um, I think it's just、not. the morals, yeah. No, yeah. I think I think you're right. I think it's just the people that are there, the just the morals that they have. They don't have this. I mean, America is different in many ways, but I think Americans often just have the urge to to be wealthy, to have money, and all that sort of stuff, and that's how they think of happiness. Most, I think, most of them, or a lot of them at least, but. In Bhutan, I think the morality is just like I just want to be happy. I just want to live a good life, be with my friends, stay loyal. All of those like valuable lessons that we look up to, but we never really capture. Yeah, it's like the the, the simple things in life that we take for granted. Yeah, yeah. But now I, I, let's go back. Oh, you know, you have something to say? No, I think I was just gonna say that. I think also in Bhutan, I think what causes A lot of the happiness is the nature around them. It's a beautiful country. Anyway, continue. Yes, very beautiful. Six seventy percent forest. Yes, exactly.、Um, yes, but now going back to Paulden's like courage, like so in prison he was given you know I think two opportunities to denounce the Chinese like to their faces basically when he was asked、um, why did he escape、um, once by like you know his 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 um. The, the people, his interrogators, you know, at the at the prison, but also one time,、um, you know, the prisoners were forced to ask,、um, you know, Paulden, you know, why did you escape?、Uh, because like, it's like, are you not grateful for the prison? And it, I found that kind of funny. Like, of course, like, of course, they're not grateful for the prison.、Um, you know, they're being tormented. And so, like, would you would you have the courage to to speak out against、um, the Chinese and 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 also do that in front of them at the UN? I think, I think it's one thing to to speak out to them in front of their face because I mean, if it's an interview, like personal interrogation, like one on one or something like that, I think it would be easier to let them know how you feel. But I mean, him at the UN was just—I don't know if I'd have the guts to do that. I mean, he's like putting a—it's like putting a target on his head. Like he's just—he's putting it all out there. Yeah. And、the thing is, I I don't even know if the UN's even that powerful, because、um, you, it's one thing to make your story heard. I think that's important. That's why writing his autobiography is so important. And there's even a movie about him called、um, you know Fire、um, Beneath the Snow or something like that.、Um, 2008 documentary. And so,、mm-hmm. like, so it's, you know, it's important to get the story out 
out because they now we you know me and Max know um, about you know the problem in Tibet and how like it should be its own country, and um, you know maybe someone who listens to this podcast. Um, I know I know Kyler listens to our podcast a lot, one of our biggest fans, and so you know now Kyler might know that Tibet is supposed to be its own country. So getting the word out is one thing, but. I just don't think anyone has that power. Like, I don't think they'll ever be a free, free country again. Yeah, I think that's a very difficult thing to do, though. I mean, I think it, there's more cases of it around the world, but I think Tibet might be the might be the most prominent case. But I think just not many people know about it. I mean, personally, I feel bad saying this, but I didn't know about most of the things that he's talked about politically before I read this. Right? I mean, what about you? Well, I knew I knew Tibet has been like captured by the Chinese, but I didn't know the extent of how bad it was until reading this. Yeah, and I, I think yeah. When he was talking about his interrogation, when he did explain why he did want to escape the prison, and then I think what show it shows how self-centered the Chinese were, the his oppressors, because he says that during his story they stood up once saying like oh, the, the food shortage was because of someone else. It wasn't us. And I think that just shows how they were just, they just cared. They just, they wanted to save themselves. They want to save their looks. They wanted to be always the nice guy. But I mean, they really can't be. I mean, in the eyes of the prisoners, they were just horrible. Yeah. Well, now I, I like what you brought up there because it was, I thought it was kind of funny that um, like the Chinese were always, they're all about like socialism, which is like everyone gets the same and no one is starving no one is tormented and yet everyone in tibet was like was was much worse off like was like was worse off than they were when it was like tibet was like a demo when i don't know if it was a democracy but when the dalai lama was you know the the the, the ruler or the religious ruler of um tibet and like back then although there was like you know the serfdom like there was a landlord and there's people who worked for him and stuff um people were much like they had food to eat every single day but once the chinese came with their like socialism like no one had any food to eat and like whenever the prisoners brought this up they're like oh no 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 that that can't be the problem because we are socialism everyone must have food to eat you know and it's like that's not the case so i like like to think like like these chinese soldiers they must have been human like they are human and so when they go home like are they like like I wish like a Chinese soldier wrote an autobiography, like what goes on through their mind? Do they just feel super bad? Are they like, are they like ashamed of what they've done all those years, or um, are they proud? Or like, are they just like a robot? Like, I don't understand how like what's going on through their mind. You know, now that we know what's going on through the mind of like the monks. I think this is similar to what we brought up earlier. How the kids in country should be taught about the wrongs they've done in the past i think i don't think that the soldiers feel bad if they go home i think it's just neutral i think it's more like a robot i think they just it's their job they think socialism is great just because that's how it's always been and i think that's just how it is for them i don't think they feel bad they feel i don't think they feel good about it because it's just their job i don't think they they realize how bad it is for the prisoners because I think it's I think it was very ironic when they asked him why did you want to escape because clearly they're just not understanding yeah. what they're doing to the prisoners I mean yeah but what that makes me think of now is like are we robots in some way to someone else 
um, like maybe I don't know, like the Native Americans, or or when you see American soldiers in like the Middle East, are we? Do we understand what they're going through? Like, like, what's the perspective that people see us from? You know, do they see us as, as um, the the oppressors, or or I do not really the oppressed. Um, I just I don't know. It makes me think about, like, it's all about perspective. So, like, I want to see what the other perspective of us is. You know. Yeah, I think you're right, but it's more of it's not really a generalization because I can't. I can't really. I mean, I I do feel bad, but I can't real truly feel bad for what other people are going through. But like, well, you said the soldiers in the Middle East. I think they can. I don't know. Actually, it's it's hard to explain. I think they can they can have that feeling. But for people to generalize that all Americans don't have that feeling and we're all horrible people, I think that's different. I think it's. Yeah, I don't yeah, know how I- to explain it. Because soldiers in the Middle East are there to, to save people, to make the world, you know, supposed to be a better place. But at the same time, their first interest that they're serving is the American interest. And maybe the Middle East people think, oh, you know, these soldiers are just breaking up our families or our ways of life. And and they might not see it as a good thing to their in their perspective. And they might just see, like, do these soldiers really like care about us? Or are they just go home and think they've done the, the good job and, and not really, you know. But at the same time, you, like... I, I can imagine that, you know, having to kill anyone or having to do anything, that's gonna, you're gonna think about that for the rest of your life. Like, even if you're like a cop, you see a lot of, you know, police brutality. And maybe if it was like, you had to kill someone and like, that's your only option. And you know, you are, you are correct. I don't know if you can, it was, it was, the, maybe if there was a, a black and white situation, it was the correct decision to make as a police officer to kill someone or you had to, you know, shoot someone that was, you know, committed a crime or something like that um i think that would still live with you for the rest of your life you would never forget it and something you always think about like was there another way could i have done that without killing him i don't know these are just the the things that i i think might go on to people's minds yeah i think that's sort of like that's not not why war is inevitable i don't think war is inevitable but i think as of now that's why war continues to happen so frequently because everyone sees things from their own perspective and while we think we're doing it for our countries or someone else's good some the person that we might inflict damage on someone else because they have personal connections and that they think it's bad i think everyone it's just based on what everyone else thinks and it's not very i don't know you can it's see not, what i'm saying though about yeah. like war being very... inevitable just because everyone has their own connections and then we like set off set off one thing that sets off another thing and other person gets mad and everything like that yeah it's not very black and white no definitely not no but um i think what paul has taught us you know this episode is that i think you can find it's important to find courage even um you know when your back is against the ropes and his back was you know very far against the ropes I think there's always chance for courage and I think there's always chance to fight back um, and that you need to fight back as long as you can still breathe um, it's your duty to fight back and to fight for what's right and to make your voice heard you know exactly I think that's definitely definitely what he was trying to portray to the people that to his readers or listeners in our case that no matter what I think you should stick to your morals and fight for what you what you think is right what you, what's right for the other people in this world and that you should fight back exactly like you said yeah 
Okay. So we'd like to we'd like to thank Paul Dinjatsu for um for writing down his his or you know taking down his life in his autobiography. And if you're interested in in reading it, um and I this is one autobiography I suggest you read um because you know it, it's long but you're not going to get bored. It's called the the autobiography of a Tibetan monk. Um it's a very good book. Yes, you will learn much. And you know, we'd also like to thank you guys for listening. Um we hope to see you in our next episode.